Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. In the past two episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we've been talking about a couple of famous, supposedly anomalous underwater images, weird, spooky-looking photographs and images produced by sonar of objects on the ocean floor, which to observers with the right predisposition seemed like compelling evidence of alien visitation of Earth or ancient technology of lost civilizations or something else in that narrative space. And in a way, I think it's kind of telling that you look at an object and say, well, this could be aliens or it could be Atlantis. It's one of the two. <laughs> or both. You can have both sometimes. Yeah, I guess you could. But anyway, explanation referring to explanations that are big, exciting, mind-rending explanations that would change everything we think we know about the world and about the history of life on Earth. Today's episode is not a strict, like, part three or anything, but we are going to be continuing the theme. So I thought it would be good to start off with a recap of uh, what we talked about in the last couple of episodes, though today we're going to be taking it in a different direction. So what's the theme? Well, uh, to start with, I'll, I'll do a brief review of the things we talked about in the last two episodes. One object was something that was photographed in the 1960s and known in the UFO literature as the Eltanen Antenna. It looks to the untrained observer like some kind of uh, antenna, some kind of receiver. You know, they called it, I think, a microwave aerial or something in some of the early uh, articles on it. But actually, once people with the right background of marine biology knowledge looked at this photo, they identified it with near certainty as a species of carnivorous sponge that lives on the bottom of the ocean. The other object that we talked about in the second of those two episodes was captured on fuzzy sonar images 
by treasure hunters and salvage divers in 2011, and it has been referred to in the media as the Baltic Sea Anomaly because it was uh, supposedly somewhere on the floor of the northern Baltic Sea. And hidden knowledge enthusiasts called it everything from a crashed flying saucer to a monument built by the civilization of Atlantis. And in this case, a positive ID is slightly more difficult than it is in the case of the Eltanen antenna, which is almost definitely the sponge, but... Numerous experts have commented that this is most likely just an interesting-looking geologic formation. In other words, a big mass of rock uh, that may be a result of the freezing and thawing of glaciers. But ultimately, we don't know for sure. And so it's kind of interesting that in both cases, the story goes that someone captured a fuzzy or low-resolution image of something that looked weird and to some extent looked intuitively unnatural or out of place. That image was then published to a lay audience that had no background knowledge to help them understand what they were looking at. And then some observers concluded that since the object looked unusual, unnatural, or out of place, it must be a piece of anomalous technology deposited by aliens or time travelers or a past human civilization about which all knowledge has been erased. However, in both cases, the more information entered into the picture, the more it seemed like these anomalies were probably just weird-looking natural phenomena, like animals or rocks. And so while it's always important to keep an open mind, you, you want to keep your mind open to good evidence if it were to emerge of big and worldview-changing discoveries, it is at the same time important not to let emotional excitement guide your reasoning. And one reason to be skeptical about putting something that looks weird and out of place into the aliens or Atlantis column is that if you follow these kinds of stories long enough, you really start to see a trend. And that trend is the more information we have to inform our judgment, the less it seems like aliens. Uh, so the cases where a piece of evidence like a photograph or a video remains unexplainable and thus still possibly aliens, those tend to be the cases where there are notable deficits of information. And these could be deficits within the evidence itself, like the picture or the video is very grainy and low resolution, so it's hard to tell exactly what you're looking at. You kind of just have to shrug and say, I don't know, it looks weird, hard to say what it is. Or the information deficit could be in the person or community that is assessing the evidence. It could be in us. For example, most of us have a lack of background knowledge about what sponges on the ocean floor look like or about what kinds of patterns can be found in natural rock formations. And so information deficits kind of keep the mystery alive. Meanwhile, the converse also seems true. The more information there is, the more likely it becomes that the object gets pinned down to an explanation from within the range of known causes. So you get a higher resolution video, or you get new videos of the same thing, maybe an additional angle, better light conditions, more experience or background knowledge with which to judge the, the video or photo, and, oh, okay, in these cases, it's a Mylar balloon, or, oh, I see, that's a star, or that's an airplane. Uh, Rob, actually, another excellent example that you brought up in the last episode was the so-called face on Mars. You know, this was, it's a wonderful photo, like, I love the face on Mars, but this was done in by higher resolution photography. Done in 
to a certain extent. But like like the, some of these other images, the face of Mars still remains this image that's kind of a, an article of faith to some, you know, or, or at least this kind of uh, totem of the paranormal and uh, the, the potentially, uh, you know, cosmic. And I guess it is still certainly a testament to our ability to, to see ourselves in anything. Well, exactly. And I wouldn't wish, by the way, that we could not read beauty and meaning into, I don't know, things that might on their own merits not necessarily shout out uh, to be meaningful, like a rock doesn't necessarily uh, say that it has meaning, but you can see faces in it and it can make you feel all kinds of things. This is like the basis of all art. Yeah. But when it comes to looking for explanations of things in the world, this pattern just pops up again and again and again. If the picture stays fuzzy, it still might be aliens or it still might be Atlantis. But if you're able to sharpen the focus or to have more background knowledge when you're assessing it, it's almost definitely not aliens. Then that's when you realize it's a balloon. And this doesn't mean we will never discover good evidence of alien visitation of Earth or anything or of, you know, maybe some big discovery about something previously unknown about the ancient world. That's always possible. But I think if you follow these stories, it's sort of impossible not to notice the trend. And awareness of the trend should put us on guard when new pieces of evidence bubble up from the low information or low resolution zone. So today we wanted to look at some similar trends, not in underwater imagery, but in imagery related to another domain that can often appear in degraded or low-resolution form and be kind of put cold in front of people who don't have contextual background knowledge to understand what we're looking at. And this is Artifacts from Ancient History. Yeah, I think I think examples like this can be at times a little harder for us to wrap our heads around, uh, especially if we are more inclined to sort of rally behind um, an, an outside idea about what uh, we're looking at, uh, because in some of these other examples of anomalous uh, data, anomalous photography, etc., uh, there's there's often maybe a sense of of kind of like a um, uh, a, a, a rabbit duck illusion scenario, you know, or, or one of these, you know, one of these uh, optical illusions where someone shows it to you and they, they, they say, hey, do you see a duck or a rabbit? And you say, well, I see a rabbit. I don't see a duck at all. And then someone says, well, look, uh, I'll show you. And you show, show them the parts of the, the duck. And they're like, okay, now I can see it both ways. Um, mm-hmm. It can maybe be a little bit harder if in order to truly see it both ways, you have to, say, understand ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. So like one of the examples I'm going to I'm going to touch on here is one where we absolutely know what it is and we absolutely know what it's not. And yet even, you know, reading the explanation, um, you know, hearing from experts about it, it, you know, it can still be difficult. It's difficult for me to to see exactly what we're talking about there. And it's actually easier for me to sort of lean in to the um, the ridiculous explanation for what appears to be in front of us. So we'll get to this in a second. But first, I just want to talk in general about the overarching theme of Egyptomania. Now, Egyptomania is more often used to refer specifically to 19th century European fascination with all things Egypt during Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. But it can also generally be leveled at various points in time when various cultures have pursued an interest in ancient Egyptian civilization and culture. And of course, this general interest is irresistible because as we've touched on many times in the show, ancient Egyptian 
civilization, ancient Egyptian culture and mythology. These are fascinating topics. Absolutely. Yeah. A beautiful, entrancing, and not just to people in the modern world. I mean, something I've read before is that people in uh, the world that still appears as the ancient world to us looked back to the even more ancient Egyptian civilization, and they were fascinated by it. There were, uh, there were ancient Greco-Romans who had a kind of Egyptomania. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we've, we've mentioned the sort of mind-blowing fact before, you know, that the ancient Romans uh, were greatly intrigued by ancient Egypt, which was already as ancient to them as the Romans are to us. Right. So at the time of Caesar Augustus, ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian civilization was thousands of years old. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, we've touched uh, before on the ancient wonders of the world, you know, the, the, the pyramids, the great pyramids were certainly on that list. And those still remain some of the most enigmatic man-made structures on the planet. And we still don't know everything there is to know about them. So Egyptology remains a living field of study. Now, uh, I was looking at a really, really good book about this that I, I highly recommend. It's from uh, Ronald H. Fritz, titled Egyptomania. And in the book, the author discusses various forms of Egyptomania over the ages, from the ancient Hebrews, from Greeks and Romans to European models. There's a whole section on like uh, fiction and gets into movies. Uh, he also has a, a great chapter on Afrocentrist movements that uh, engage in Egyptomania. And he drives home that just many different peoples across different times have attempted to imagine and even remake the ancient Egyptians in their own image to enhance their own worldview, their own interests, their own ideology, etc. And the energy of this uh, exercise ranges from just merely attempting to understand a fascinating time and people. I mean, that's one of our main tools is to think about uh, even people from uh, the distant past in different lands to like try and imagine what it would be like to be them. But on the other end of the spectrum, you get into just outright pseudo-history, pseudo-science, and just everything else you might expect to encounter on the fringes. Well, yeah, there's an interesting duality that comes from uh, trying to see yourself and, and imagine people like you in other times and other civilizations, because, of course, there probably is something that all people at all times kind of have in common. There is a common human experience, and you can try to imagine what it would have been like to live in ancient Egypt. But there, there, it's, there's a possibility that in doing so, you kind of lull yourself into the false belief that you can, say, look at ancient Egyptian art or look at ancient Egyptian artifacts and just intuitively identify what you're looking at, when in fact you would probably need some very specific cultural knowledge to understand what you're looking at. Yeah. And a lot of this imagery, getting right into what we're talking about here, is the kind of stuff that can be mysterious enough, that can seem cryptic enough to folks who don't know what they're looking at, that you can apply other ideas, modern ideas to them. You know, like you just read a book about UFOs. Well, go look at these uh, these images without any context and you may see UFO related ideas there. Read a book about um, the bicameral mind and start looking at uh, at some of these images. Well, you might have some some alarming ideas and some uh, some some interesting interpretations of what you see as well. Right. We read the world through the lenses that are available to us. And very often the lenses that are available to us, sort of what's a, the top lens on the stack is whatever you've recently been thinking about. Yeah. And not to say that, you know, fresh eyes and fresh perspectives are not potentially important 
in reevaluating what we know and what we think we know. But um, oftentimes when there is a particular um, preconceived notion in mind, you're not necessarily checking back in with the experts to see if this radical new theory matches up with the old school interpretation, etc. Certainly when we get into fringe ideas. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So anyway, there's a long history of Egyptomania in Western magic and occultism. Continues to play into modern ideas of magic and occultism, but also modern branches of fringe ideas concerning UFOs, ancient alien discourse, which of course we've discussed on the show in the past, and other paranormal concepts. And yeah, so it's no surprise that various examples of iconography, archaeological remnants, and so forth that are not located on the bottom of the sea still end up speaking to us across time and culture in a way that 
to inexpert eyes or eyes seeking only confirmation of the paranormal, examples of ancient technology and so forth, um, you know, they're going to see that in these images. Uh, so in, in just a few minutes, we'll get to a couple, I think, of interesting examples of this. But going back to the book Egyptomania, uh, Fritz points out that there are other not necessarily alien fringe ideas that, um, that pre-exist UFO fascination um, that already insisted that ancient Egypt was, for instance, much older than mainstream historians believe today. Um, some of these push back to like 10,000 BC or earlier. Um, as opposed to the accepted view that the Archaic Age stretches 5,000 to 3,000 BC with the Old Kingdom coming in at around 3,000 BC. And then you have a number of fringe ideas uh, that don't, again, don't concern aliens or anything like that, but they they get into this idea that, like, surely there is some ancient advanced civilization at the heart of all of this. And so Fritz discusses a few of these. There's this idea, one idea is that uh, the ancient, ancient Egyptian civilization extends from Civilization X or the Ice Age super civilization. Oh, there, there are uh, similar analogs to this that are still kicking around today. Yeah. And of course, a, a big, big one is Atlantis, the idea that, um, that, that like refugees from sunken Atlantis founded ancient Egypt, that sort of thing. And then you also have the ancient alien discourse coming in, ancient aliens, aliens teaching the ancient Egyptians how to do things uh, or ancient aliens interbreeding with the ancient Egyptians, supercharging human DNA and basically mm. anything else you want to happen. I don't know. I feel like a lot of alien discourse is like wrong, but fun. But like the alien supercharging DNA thing goes is not wrong and fun. It's like wrong and gross. <laughs> yeah, you get it. You I mean, so much of this, it can the, these ideas, they can start in a place that feels just fun and escapist. But you, you follow them long enough, they can get into perhaps creepier territory. Uh, but there is still a lot of variety here to choose from, and uh, Fritz uh, writes the following, quote, The outpouring and accumulation of the many theories that alternative historians advanced about ancient Egypt could be considered a cornucopia. But since so many of the theories clash with and contradict each other, a better description might be a cacophony. And I think we saw this in some of the discussion of our previous underwater examples uh, as well. You know, what is the anomaly? Well, there's never like this single paranormal explanation, but a whole host of them. Uh, certainly uh, the, the deeper you go into a theme like, OK, it's an antenna, but is that is it the secret world government that built it or is it the ancient lost civilization that built it or is it current ufo current alien visitors that built it and within a, a given person's body of work they might have a specific idea but it's going to be different from the next book on the shelf or as we mentioned directly uh, earlier if you look at an object on the ocean floor and you think well this could be a ufo or it could be a temple built by the people of atlantis or it could be a nazi bunker in that yeah. case, like, could it really possibly even suggest any of those like it yeah. that those are so different? It, it sounds like you're just kind of like reaching around for whatever, not like saying, oh, it really has attributes that would make us conclude it is X. Yeah, exactly. Now, the Atlantis connection to ancient Egypt goes way back, apparently goes back to the writings of Plato concerning the idea that the ancient Egyptians coexisted with Atlantis 9,000 years earlier, 
Uh, Fritz writes that while Plato was likely stating all of this, you know, purely to make a philosophical point, the idea that Egypt was already a 9,000-year-old civilization was probably what contemporary Greeks believed in the 4th and 5th centuries BCE. Uh, and, and to be clear, other civilizations of the day were cited were with bloated timelines as well. Yeah, one big difference between like an ancient Greek historian and a modern historian is that modern historians have a wealth of physical scientific evidence that they can draw on to help inform, you know, how they should process the received stories told about the past. You know, you can like you can do digs and you can uh, do radiometric dating and you can do all kinds of things that give you physical clues to help you either confirm or disconfirm things that have been written down about what happened in the past. Absolutely. Now, um, of course, one of the things about Atlantis is that uh, the concept never completely goes away, uh, certainly in the West, but it, it comes and it goes. It's heightened by the discovery of an inhabited Americas. And then again, in the 19th and 20th centuries, with modern pseudo history of Egypt and Atlantis emerging largely from the writings, apparently, of American politician um, Ignatius Donnelly in 1882. Donnelly, if uh, you're not familiar with him, um, represented Minnesota in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1863 through 1869. Uh, he pushed a number of ideas concerning pseudoscience and pseudohistory. Um, so, uh, yeah, d- definitely a, a, one, of, one of the many uh, characters that Fritz writes about in this section. Oh, boy. Now, uh, another figure that Fritz touches on here and, and credits largely with this sort of modern idea that Egypt had advanced technology, ancient Egypt had advanced technology. Uh, this goes back to the psychic readings of one Edgar Casey, who lived 1877 through 1945, a self-professed uh, clairvoyant who carried out, quote unquote, life readings for people and revealed their past lives in ancient Atlantis as well as the advanced technology that the Atlanteans supposedly had, such as advanced crystal laser weapons that they ultimately used to destroy Atlantis with the survivors fleeing to Egypt. Crystal laser weapons? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it sounds remarkably uh, like that um, old Atari 2600 game Atlantis. Um, I don't know if anyone out there actually played this, but I remember as a kid seeing the commercials for it online and it was it was kind of a scary commercial with a whole narrative structure going on had to do with i believe memory serves a a, a an ongoing war between the gorgons and the people of atlantis and um it was it was a great commercial look it up if you haven't seen it you know i kind of can't help but think though all these ideas about ancient egypt having advanced technology in a way they did have advanced technology, but they had advanced technology for the time in which they lived. Like, you do not have to turn to bad standards of evidence for examples of amazing technological achievements in ancient Egypt. They built the pyramids among, you know, tons of other things. That was not ancient aliens. That was extremely smart and industrious people creating amazing technological achievements with a very limited set of tools compared to what's available to people today. That is an amazing technological feat. It was just an amazing technological feat for the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the tragedies about all of this is like when you when you get wrapped up in, say, ancient alien discourse, you end up you know, reducing the importance of 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 what people were actually doing if you're if you just attribute it to the gifts of the the gods the gifts of the alien visitors and so forth now i want to stress that in this chapter fritz touches on a number of different names and i'm not going to get into everybody here but you know it's there 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 are various writers and 
occasional outright con men that are engaged in, in this sort of work and uh, their work kind of feeds off each other. Um, one of the big ones, uh, though, one of the big names, uh, certainly in ancient alien discourse, is the work of Eric von Daniken, who we've talked about on the show before because he is the, was the author of Chariots of the Gods in 1968. I say mm-hmm. it that way because the title does have a question mark at the end. Um, I always pronounce the question mark. Like he's like kind of getting you with the elbow and winking while he says yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we mentioned him. We, we went, went in and discussed this idea at length and the various criticisms to it. Um, but even this idea, like it was influenced by the writings of H.P. Lovecraft and other weird writers of the early 20th century. Um, Lovecraft and his contemporaries, by the way, also wrote about tales related to Egyptian motifs and um, Egyptian-oriented uh, occultism and so forth. So you have a lot of these sources feeding into each other. It's been years since we did the Eric Von Daniken episode, but am I remembering something about how he had, like, created a Chariots of the Gods theme park? Is that, am I losing my mind? No, no. There was slash is a theme park. I'm not sure uh, off the top of my head what, what's going on with it right now. But, like, that's how big this this got. I want a flat earth six flags. <laughs> Now, uh, Fritz points out, though, that early um, ancient alien discourse folks and even von Daniken's original book don't actually reference Egypt all that much. So you have other individuals who kind of come in with the Egyptology, alternative Egyptology view of everything, and that gets uh, you know sucked into the whole concept. He points out uh, one particular author, I believe this is a, a book from 1984 from one, uh, Zechariah uh, Sitchin, who lived 1920 through 2010. This is apparently one of the only serious competitors to Von Daniken because Von Daniken's books generated a lot of discussion and, uh, you know, they're pretty popular for the time period. So a lot of other authors came in to try and cash in on ancient alien discourse. Uh, But this particular individual, uh, Sitchin, um, seems to have been one of the the, the more successful uh, of of those to come in and and, and try and get cash in on everything here. Um, And... Uh, Fritz points out that he seems to have avoided a lot of the criticism that was reserved for Von Daniken. So Von Daniken got big enough to where, like, when people like Carl Sagan entered the the chat, Von Daniken's ideas are the one uh, are the ones that Carl Sagan is going to respond to. Carl Sagan doesn't have time to deal with everybody else uh, in the genre. And to be clear, Carl Sagan was not saying that ancient aliens like uh, were a viable explanation for the pyramids or anything. He, he, as I recall, entered the discourse to kind of say, well, if we're going to entertain this possibility, we should have some standards of evidence, right? Like we should mm-hmm. lay out in advance what would we be looking for instead of just like looking at what's out there and saying like, yeah, that could be aliens. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought Sagan had, had, had some great responses to it. They were not like 100% shut it down dismissive of it as a concept, but were, but but also yeah, reiterated that there are high standards for this. And if you were looking for evidence, you would be looking for very specific sorts of evidence and so forth. But again, when Sagan's entering the conversation, when other critics are coming in and dealing with what Von Donegan's written about, especially with that first book, they're not dealing with, with the Egyptian-themed content. Um, Individuals like uh, Sitchin apparently are the ones who were the ones to initially drag Egypt and ancient Egypt into the scenario. And perhaps a lot of that, uh, Fritz writes, seems to have maybe existed below the mainstream radar for a while. 
um, you know, being just a part of stuff that's discussed in the fringe movements. And it's not until the 1990s, he writes, that we see, quote, the penetration of highly speculative theories about ancient Egypt into mainstream popular culture. I think maybe the designation as highly speculative is a good one, because sometimes I'm looking for the right blanket terminology to describe all these different types of explanations that we're talking about. Uh, they're not all necessarily like conspiracy theories. Uh, they don't all necessarily have exactly the same content. But what they do seem to have in common is that they are highly speculative, meaning they are elaborating a lot of explanatory narrative on uh, on a very weak evidential basis. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to be clear here, uh, what, what apparently is going on 
at this time, leading into the 1990s, according to the to the author here, Fritz, is that under the surface of all this other talk about uh, ancient aliens and so forth and other paranormal ideas, there is this kind of growing um, swell of alternative Egyptology. And then during the 1990s, it begins to bubble up into the mainstream discourse. And Fritz cites two main reasons for this. One is the approaching millennium and various uh, ideas concerning uh, the, the new millennium that's about to uh, uh, be here. The second reason he brings up is that there are just a number of new archaeological discoveries that were taking place in Egypt that were capturing mainstream attention and were inadvertently fueling the nonsense that, again, was festering in the fringe. Ah, I see. So, like, because for totally legitimate reasons, ancient Egypt might be popping up on the news, like you're seeing it on TV in ways that you probably didn't see it as much before. Uh, it's just sort of in the air, and it is one more thing you could attach highly speculative theories to. Yeah, and then you have you have other individuals that are writing more directly about it. It's popping up in the writings of Graham Hancock, for example. Um, he also cites the X Files as being popular, though. I, I you have more expertise with the X Files. I don't know if the X Files ever actually had um, any ancient Egyptian themed content. I don't know if they ever went up against a mummy or anything. I recall very little about that, except well, actually. Now that I think about it, I think there may have been a mummy episode that is uh, remembered as one of the worst episodes of the <laughs> X-Files ever. Okay. Uh, unless that's hold on. Got to look it up now. Oh, no, I see why my memory was confused here. Yeah. One of the worst X-Files episodes ever does concern a mummy, but it's not an Egyptian mummy. It's a South oh, American okay. mummy. OK, well, even if the X-Files are not directly contributing to alternative Egyptology discourse, um, it, you can, I guess, look at it as kind of like a sign that that fringe ideas were were entering into the mainstream uh, it, at the very least as entertainment. But then I guess sometimes entertainment has a way of bleeding over into other things. Don't drag the X-Files into this. The X-Files, <laughs> the X-Files are pure and holy. They didn't do anything wrong. That's a fictional show. It's OK. <laughs> but uh, I guess the, the bigger thing that's going on here uh, that, that uh, Fritz points out is that at the time, academics had largely ignored these trends, like academics in um, uh, Egyptology and so forth, archaeologists and so forth. Um, yeah, they, they weren't venturing into arguments against um, uh, ancient alien discourse folks and so forth. And that's sensible by and large because like that's not what their work is. That's not what what they have set out to do with their work and their careers to just respond to various highly speculative ideas about why things appear the way they are. Well, and it's often difficult to respond to highly speculative ideas from an informed point of view, because a lot of times all you can just say is like, uh, there's no reason to think all that, you know, like the the claims of highly speculative theories are often not like the kinds of tight, specific, focused claims about specific pieces of evidence that you can uh, that you would be used to addressing, say, in an academic archaeology journal or something mm -hmm. like that. They're like these elaborations. They spin these wild narratives that are kind of too big to even like know where to get a toehold in if you're trying to criticize them other than to just kind of say like, well, that just sounds all made up. Yeah. Fritz writes, quote, academics generally avoid dealing with alternative scholars. This attitude is justified by the excuse that debating alternative or fringe scholarship only gives it a false credibility. 
Some consider debating speculative scholars as a dialogue of the deaf, since the speculative ideas tend to be treated by their adherents in a manner of religious faith rather than scientific inquiry, while some academics just hold speculative ideas in contempt. Ignoring the alternative Egyptologists did not, however, serve the academic Egyptologist well during the 1990s. They found themselves marginalized in the popular mind and put on the defense. So the argument here is that perhaps they, they did wait too long to respond to a lot of these ideas that were welling up into the mainstream. And he points out that it was apparently wasn't until a pair of BBC Horizon documentary specials titled Atlantis Uncovered and Atlantis Reborn weighed in and offered a scathing rebuke of these ideas in the mainstream, and this wasn't until 1999. You know, I feel like this mirrors a pattern that's still a problem with, uh, with like, highly speculative alternative ideas of all sorts today, because usually people who have real expertise in the field are busy talking to each other, and they're kind of in a contained conversation space, Meanwhile, people who are offering highly speculative ideas go straight to the media and to a popular audience. Yeah. And you can understand, too, why I mean, thinking that the pyramids were built by aliens, does that necessarily pose like a real threat to, to, uh, you know, at what point do you do you actually make the call? It's like, okay, enough is enough. We need to say something about this. We need to put together a documentary to dismiss this nonsense because it seems like for a long stretch of the buildup, you can say like, well, this is dumb or this doesn't really match up with any actual work uh, but that, that's been conducted, any actual research or evidence, but it's not hurting anybody. You could say that. and A, a lot of people do say that, but I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if these... Uh, supposedly harmless, I mean, probably they are somewhat harmless in themselves, uh, highly speculative theories or conspiracy theories sort of uh, engender a pattern of thinking that can easily be used to foster incredibly destructive and dangerous ideas that are violent. Absolutely. I think, I think at this point, certainly uh, this day and age, I think most of us realize that like the, the realm of conspiracy thinking is not just a domain of like escapist ideas that are not hurting anybody. There are plenty of harmful ideologies that are uh, that are woven throughout many of these um, th- these branches of conspiracy thought. Then again, I mean, I want to be realistic and say, I don't, I don't know if you can really say that if if we had done a better job of convincing people that aliens didn't build the pyramids, that they wouldn't end up thinking, you know, some kind of violent conspiracy theory. But you do have to wonder if just sort of like uh, ignoring and letting it pass when people are engaging in conspiracy thinking in these other domains just sort of like lets that style of thought fester. All right, well, let's let's look at the evidence. And by look at the evidence, I mean, let's look at a couple of examples. We are not setting out to look at, like at, at uh, like all the evidence or alleged evidence uh, for uh, ancient Egyptian advanced technology and chariots of the gods and so forth. These are just a few, a couple of examples that I think match up with what we've been discussing about information, um, data, images, et cetera, that uh, can be perplexing. And that can certainly lead to an interpretation uh, that is, again, not based in expertise and not based in like a wider body of evidence, but are based in confirmation bias and based in some sort of a um, an alternative understanding of science and or history. Okay, what you got? So did the ancient Egyptians have Apache helicopters? 
Oh, got to be yes, surely. <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're, we're going to move forward with the, the spoiler in place that no, they did not. But there is a, 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 an image that you will find and you've probably seen online. Uh, you see some hieroglyphics and there is an image or a character towards the top that if we're being generous, kind of looks like a modern helicopter. And next to it is something that I guess kind of looks like a space tank. I mean, while we're doing this, let's not go all out. Under the helicopter, there is an R2-D2. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, what you're saying is a tank. That looks to me kind of like a MiG fighter jet. Okay, all right. We also got a, we we have, um, keeping up with the R2-D2 theme, we have Luke Skywalker's land speeder. You see that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's that's what I was kind of seeing as a tank. It does look oh, like a okay. land speeder as well, yeah. And then, of course, we have a, we have a bug of some sort as well. That's clearly a bug. But is it a giant bug, right? I, you know, uh, your, your theory may vary. Now, one of the things about this image is a lot of the places where you see it, they're not going to be approaching it from a, um, a skeptical point of view. Uh, and actually finding, like, good sources on this where someone's just going to come in and, um, and tell you exactly what you're looking at are actually a little harder to come across. And I think this is where you get into the, the problem of, like, like, experts in ancient Egypt and hieroglyphics are not necessarily wasting their time weighing in on whether uh, ancient hieroglyphics show us a helicopter. Right. So I haven't checked, but I would guess that, like, is this hieroglyphic a helicopter is not like the subject of many Egyptology journal articles. Right. Right. But I was able to find a, you know, a few different sources that that discuss it in a, in a way that I could I could get behind the image in question. Uh, I've seen in a couple of places it uh, attributed to a 1987 photo uh, by um, a, an American who was visiting the Temple of Osiris in Abydos, Egypt. Uh, so it's a, it's a real photo uh, of a real object, of real uh, you know, etchings, and it's pretty clear. Like there's, it's one of these things where the photo quality and the reality of the thing that is photographed, these are not in question. Um, but it's this interpretation of what you're looking at. That's where you see these enormous leaps taken uh, where people are seeing bits of advanced technology. Uh, but fortunately, there is a very straightforward explanation for what we see here. Um, I, I found a couple of different discussions of this, but the one I'm going to uh, uh, lean on mostly is uh, this was uh, from an article that um, ancient historian Richard C. Carrier wrote about back in 1999 for the Skeptical Inquirer in an article titled Flash, Fox News reports that aliens may have built the pyramids of Egypt. Mm. As the title suggests, this is about coverage at the time on Fox News um, again, this is 1999, about alternative Egyptology, and the broadcast included images of the alleged helicopter and comparison images to modern Apache attack helicopters. So Carrier spoke to some Egyptologists for the article, and it seems to have, seems to have been sort of new pseudo-history uh, to some of them at the time. Um, again, this was during that, uh, the, the you know, very end of the 1990s, so it seems like you know, the subculture was bubbling up into the mainstream quite a bit. He writes the following to sum it all up. But what do the experts say about this helicopter glyph? This will serve as an example for all the rest. The helicopter, in fact, is the Abydos palimpsest. A palimpsest is what is created when new writing is inscribed over old. In the case of papyri, old ink is scraped off, 
But in the case of inscriptions, plaster is added over the old inscription and a new inscription is made. The image described as a helicopter is well known to be the names of Ramesses inscribed over the names of his father, something Ramesses was known to do quite frequently. A little bit of damage from time and weathering has furthered the illusion of a helicopter. It basically comes down to just this basic fact, though, that a a previous image, a previous inscription was plastered over and replaced with another one. And then when stuff starts wearing away, a sort of hybrid image emerges that doesn't mean anything, but that looks like something from our modern age. Um, You know, I guess it would be like uh, it'd be like if one billboard were plastered over another one and then Mm. there's a fierce storm and it tears part of the billboard away. And then so you have a mix of the old billboard and the new billboard. And what you're left with is just kind of confusing. But maybe it looks like a monster. Maybe it looks like, you know, what have you. And by the way, the, the topic of Palimpsest is uh, is fascinating. Uh, there's a much older episode of Stuck to Blow Your Mind that goes into it. But, yeah, you get into this whole realm of, you know, erased books just under the surface of ancient tomes. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes they've been unearthed. Sometimes you have to use, you know, modern technology to sort of see through uh, the printed page and see what was originally there. And you see it in paintings and, and much more. And it can seem a bit foreign to us given how just disposable paper is and uh, you know you can rewrite files uh, you know as many times as, as as you want you can just sit around uh, creating new documents and uh, deleting them all day but there was a time when in order to erase document and create new document well that meant grabbing the plaster <laughs> okay so this strikes me as a case that is in the the low information category we've been talking about in multiple ways so the original image is somewhat altered or degraded in in the way that it's been uh photographed uh, like it might be hard especially if you're not familiar with with ancient egyptian inscriptions to understand that what you're looking at is not even one single continuous uh drawing or uh, or, or, or piece of imagery, but is instead a couple of things sort of bleeding into each other. And then on top of that, there's the low information condition of us looking at it without being familiar with, say, the way the name Ramesses is, is depicted in hieroglyphics. Yes. Now, the second example we're going to look at here is, uh, is also really fascinating. And this one is a lot, in a, ways, in, a, in a way, this one is a lot more clear. Uh, but is also even more cryptic and even harder to really understand. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we roll into the uh, discussion here. But this concerns the so-called Dindera lights or the Dindera light. So these are a series of stone reliefs in the, the Hathor temple in Dindera, Egypt. Now, you can look up images of this, and uh, I've included one of the images here for you to look at, uh, Joe. And um, they are quite captivating. And I mean, it's it's almost unfair to throw people at this with um, sort of uh, alternative Egyptology in the back of their mind, because it's going to make you lean in to perhaps seeing things, uh, again, from not only a modern standpoint, which we can't help but do, but also from a standpoint of looking for some sort of crazy advanced technology in the past. So if you were looking at these just kind of out of context, but not with any specific expectations of advanced technology... I think you might guess that we're looking at a couple of ancient Egyptian individuals who have giant eggplants, and those giant eggplants have giant snakes on them. Um, this would, this would, of course, be be incorrect. This is not exactly what we're looking at, but that's what it kind of looks like to me. I might have said giant shields. I mean, 
they're holding some what looks like a really large flat object on which a uh, a sort of slithering snake is depicted. Uh, but of course, the strange thing is that out of the bottoms of the shields, there is coming some sort of line, which, again, if you're playing into ancient technology thinking, you could say, is that a power cord? Is that a, a some kind of cable? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So there's this sense of plant to it. Yeah, there's definitely a snake. There's no doubt about this snake. Um, but then there's this, yeah, this large sort of bulb or, or eggplant-like shape to the thing. And so the... Um, the alternative, the highly speculative hypothesis here that uh, that one sees reflected in some of this, um, you know, ancient alien discourse and and um, and you know uh, pseudo histories and pseudo uh, scientific um, ideas concerning ancient Egypt are that well, what they are holding here are filament light bulbs or representations of filament light bulbs. Okay, well, if you are familiar with incandescent light bulbs, you can absolutely see how somebody would make that comparison. There is the the shield or the eggplant shape looks like it could be a, you know, a transparent glass tube. The snake depicted on it looks like it could be maybe looks like it could be the filament inside the the bulb. And then the sort of line, there's like a a sort of flower looking thing at the base of the bulb. And you could imagine that is the socket or or not the socket. What would you call it? The, um, you know, the metal part at the base of an incandescent light bulb. And then the line extending away from the bottom, you could say, okay, that looks like a, a power line. It looks like, you know, whatever the electricity is going in through. Yeah, so the radical idea here would be that the ancient Egyptians had mastery over electricity. They made light bulbs, or I guess received light bulbs from someone, like they got a you know a monthly delivery from the aliens or something. Uh, and they wired up their various buildings with electric lights of one sort or the other. Um, <laughs> the aliens gave them highly inefficient incandescent light bulbs. Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, when you get into the the various arguments, they also they draw comparisons to um, you know sort of like early um, different variations of, of artificial lighting. So I don't know the they, the exact model may vary, but the idea, yeah, is that the ancient Egyptians had light bulbs. Now, actual experts who weigh in on this will will say, well, this these these are not light bulbs. Obviously, uh, what we're looking at is a symbolic motif. And another huge important fact here is that these are not illustrations or, or, or engravings that are occurring in isolation and out of context. Like there's plenty of context. Uh, the most important being that this is a temple um, of Hathor. This is a, a god of ancient Egypt um, who Geraldine Pinch in the book Egyptian Mythology describes as a golden goddess that aided in childbirth, the rebirth of the dead, and the renewal of the cosmos. Uh, she was seemingly a complex deity with both destructive and beneficial attributes, and she was commonly depicted as a beautiful woman with a red solar disc between a pair of cow horns. Now, she could be worshipped in a few different forms, uh, but uh, one of the, the main roles she has here is a mother, and she is the, uh, the mother of Horus, uniter of the two lands. Horus, of course, is a very important god uh, in Egyptian mythology, the celestial falcon and the god of kings. So here, Horus is um, Harsomatus, uh, yeah, uniter of the two lands. And apparently in these images, we're seeing representation of him in the primeval form of a serpent in rebirth. Uh, he is depicted emerging in the form of this serpent from the lotus flower, which is in turn inside a boat, lining up with the concept of the solar god 
Ray's solar barge. Ah, okay. This is starting to make sense. Yes. Yeah. So like emerging from the lotus flower is the serpent that is Horus. Now you're probably wondering, well, what about that light bulb? What about that eggplant? Well, this is thought to be a, uh, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, a hen. That's H-N. And it may represent the womb of the sky goddess Nut or Note. And uh, this was, uh, this is a goddess that was associated with the fig tree and also with cosmic motherhood. The image in question also entails the symbolism of the Jed pillar uh, with added arms coming out. So this, this is, I mean, to, to my eyes, like this is way weirder. This is the far weirder element is this strange pillar looking thing that's sort of holding up uh, one of the uh, eggplant shapes mm-hmm. um, and has arms coming out. Uh, like some sort of like bizarre psychedelic Muppet. Um, but uh, this is also grounded in um, in ancient Egyptian symbolism. You know, it's about uh, stability and, um, you know, and um, holding up the cosmos and so forth. You could argue that this looks like a baseball bat with several rings around it, and it has arms. It has two arms, and it's pushing on the so-called light bulb. Yeah, so in, in the same way that if we look at hieroglyphics, we're looking... At, at language that we have no frame of reference for. It's similar with, with, with the icons that we're seeing represented here. We have no, unless we're trained in it, we have no uh, frame of, of context for what these symbols are and what they represent. And all you can ultimately do is sort of like try and take them at, I guess, in a sort of base level. Um, and then you can potentially lean into these uh, elaborate explanations for what you're seeing. And, uh, you know, you can imagine the, what would occur if you were to take any form of uh, you know, highly symbolic art from the modern world and try and understand what you're looking at. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's speaking of visual language that, that we probably are not going to pick up on in the modern age, again, unless we have the expertise and we've, uh, you know, we, we are an Egyptologist, et cetera, uh, or it's been explained to us. Because at the end of the day, what we're likely looking at here is um, some representation of the rise of the sun and its journey through the night, though delivered through religious ideas and symbolism of the time and, and also the specific theology of this particular deity. Right. And it looks like a light bulb to us rather than this uh, ancient Egyptian artistic motif because we're used to seeing light bulbs. We're not used to seeing this artistic motif. And if you happen to be familiar with the right ancient Egyptian art, you recognize it as, oh, it's one of those. Yeah. Now, um, I I looked at a a particular book by uh, archaeologist and author Kenneth L. Fetter uh, on this matter. Uh, The book is Frauds, Myths and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. And he points out that these quote-unquote lights factor into Eric von Daniken's 1996 book, The Eyes of the Sphinx, mm. in which von Daniken argues that the only rational way that the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, could have worked in the dark confines of the pyramids and other locations, other structures, without leaving telltale lamp black from, uh, you know, burning lamps, the only possible way this could be the case is if they were using electric lights airtight. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Fetter points out that Egyptologists have a far less imaginative explanation backed up by actual evidence, and that is that the ancient Egyptians used linen soaked in oil or animal fat and twisted into wicks. These wicks would have uh, burned quite brightly, and then with salt applied, this would uh, produce less smoke, which would produce less lamp black. Um, 
and they would have, yeah, they would have burned pretty brightly, bright enough to conduct their work. And they would also burn for a set amount of time that would apparently mark the length of an artisan or a worker's shift. Hmm. And again, this is something we have context for, we have physical evidence for. Uh, it factors into our overall understanding of, of who the ancient Egyptians were and what their world was like. But if you go with a light bulb hypothesis, well, you have no evidence because we have, where are examples of, of the other light bulbs, the spent bulbs, where's evidence of the bulb production facilities, the, the power sources, the wiring, etc. I mean, it all just falls quickly apart. Um, instead, Von Daniken apparently leaned on the thoroughly discredited uh, hypothesis of the Baghdad battery as proof. Uh, this is yet another artifact that has been interpreted by some as uh, electrical technology in the ancient world, but probably was not. Right. And so um, the author here, uh, Fetter, not Von Doniken, sums up, quote, because prehistoric pictorial depictions and even early written descriptions are sometimes indistinct or vague, and perhaps more important because they are part of a different culture and have a context not immediately apparent to those who do not explore further, you can see or read anything you want into them, just as you can with ink blots. Mm. And so he refers to this elsewhere in the book as the ink blot principle, which I think is a, a good way of thinking about um, evidence of this nature. Now, one way in which I would distinguish this example from many of the others is that uh, this example does not seem as within the image itself as uh, degraded in quality or vague to me, at least in the uh, like the illustrations I see from books. It looks like, you know, we get a pretty clear picture of what the artwork, uh, what at least the outlines in the artwork were supposed to be. But you're still, even though the picture is fairly sharp in the low information zone because you, you don't have the, the context, the, the background knowledge to place what you're looking at within its cultural uh, milieu. Yeah, I mean, we just don't have the symbolic language um, at our disposal to necessarily look at this and understand what's taking place. And again, I think this is this is not something that's that that is unique to ancient Egyptian religious imagery. I think you could apply this to to various um, other examples of even contemporary religious imagery, where if you if you don't know what you're looking at, you're yeah, you're not going to understand the, the the message of it, like what is being theologically relayed in this image. And uh, you have to fall back on either just like, again, a very literal interpretation of what you're looking at or dragging in some sort of other belief system or some sort of other, um, you know, mode of understanding, which may or may not involve aliens. Another thing that I'm struck is, is sort of the, the general principle of thinking behind the Eric Von Daniken argument that, uh, okay, they're working in the dark inside the pyramid chambers, and they wouldn't have been able to see what they were working on without leaving lamp black unless they had light bulbs. That seems to be a general style of argument used by, like, ancient aliens people. I mean, the same thing is said about the construction of the pyramids more generally. It's like, I can't see how they could have done this, therefore it must have been aliens with advanced technology. Uh, that is a really poor way to reason. Instead, you could start by saying, like, well, what if instead of in invoking uh, entities that uh, would radically reshape our way of thinking about the world and there is no independent evidence of? What if instead of that, we uh, think that maybe they figured out a solution that you haven't thought of or you don't have awareness of? Yeah, like, I mean, you would, it would be understandable if you didn't know about this whole adding salt 
uh, to, uh, to, to torches or lights uh, as a way to decrease um, lamp black. There's so many things like that in life that would have been apparent or known to individuals who depended on lamp technology or fire-based illumination technology as opposed to the mode we're familiar with and the mode that we then potentially read into these ancient images. Yeah, I would just say be careful about making the move of I can't understand how someone could have done X too. Therefore, they must have relied upon powers that are extraordinary and we have no other independent evidence of. I'm reminded of uh, various time travel movies that we've uh, discussed or looked at on, uh, on Weird House Cinema where you have some sort of time traveler from the past going into the future and they are, um, and they may not be time traveling, perhaps they're frozen, et cetera. You know, a man out of time wakes up and they're trying to understand our advanced contemporary technology. They might look at a TV and they're like, they shrunk a person down and put him in a tiny box. And, you know, and this is often played up for comedy, but it's not that different from (laughs) the sort of, uh, you know, you know, what you could consider ridiculous analysis of past technology, uh, where instead of, uh, you know, uh, leaning on, uh, uh, you know, the actual context of the thing and, and what they're capable of, you're going to this extreme model that, uh, that you can't possibly explain with uh, any degree of accuracy. That's an amazing analogy, actually. We are the unfrozen caveman lawyer in reverse when we look at the ancient (laughs) world. You know, so he comes up and says, I am but a simple caveman. When I get into an airplane, I think, is this some giant bird? But we are (laughs) doing the same thing. We look at an ancient inscription and say, when I look at an inscription of a bird, I think, is this an attack helicopter? (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, that's perfect. I think we have to leave it at that. I think that, that, that puts a nice cap on it. But, you know, we'd, uh, we're perfectly happy to, to continue talking about uh, this particular topic or this sort of thing in general, um, if nothing else, in future Lister Mail episodes. So write in. Let us know what your thoughts are on Egyptology, alternative Egyptology, and so forth. Or just in general, if there are other examples of this sort of data, this sort of imagery, et cetera, that, um, you know, is difficult for the average modern viewer to understand and then lends itself well to some sort of paranormal or alternative or conspiracy explanation. Just a reminder that uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind's core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have Lister Mail on Monday, Short Form Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesdays, and on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. 
No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.